Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to this week's edition of the Harness Racing Alumni Show. I'm Freddie Hudson, and I'm here with Bob Marks and Andy Cohen. The Harness Racing Alumni Show with your host, Freddie Hudson and Trey Martin. This week's alumni show is brought to you by Bill Houghton, Insurance Standards and Farms for over 40 years. Bill knows the ins and outs of equine insurance. Make sure your equine investments are protected. Call or text Bill at 954-655-5547. That's 954-655-5547. Call Bill now. Andy is going to interview Lisa Lazarus, the Executive Director of the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Fred. I appreciate it. And, and thank you, Lisa, for being here. We know that your schedule, especially these days, is, is quite busy. So we appreciate <laughs> you taking a few minutes uh, to, to answer some questions and to tell us a little bit about yourself. You were sure. um, named to the HISA um, board as the chief executive officer, I guess, effective in February, and obviously it's a monumental task of getting this organization up and running and dealing with the, the federal regulations and, and uh, all of the uh, players within the horse racing community um, for a start uh, later this year. Um, and, and so I, I guess I just wanted to, since this is an audience of harness racing people, of folks who have an interest in standard breads, try to help introduce you to them and maybe try to get you to answer a few questions that I know many folks in our corner of the horse racing world have about HISA and about the federal law and about uh, what's going to happen. But my, my first question is more of a personal one. You were able to achieve what I could only dream of achieving, which is to combine a legal degree and a law uh, background with horses. So. Tell us a little bit, if you can, briefly about your history of involving yourself in um, equestrian uh, organizations, really, around the world. Uh, the Federation Equestre Internationale, the international govern governing body for equestrian sports, um, and other uh, horse-related things. How did you come to that, and how did, were you able to blend those two, I guess, passions, the law and horses? So first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm really delighted to be here. And you know, standard breads and harness racing are an incredibly important part of the horse racing community. Um, and it's really a privilege to be able to sort of speak to, to your world directly. Um, to start with the answer to the first question, so I've always loved horses. I mean, I, you know, I, I wasn't a competitive rider, but I grew up, I grew up um, sort of exposed to horses. My grandfather 
was a horseman, and I, and I adored him, and, and he sort of loved taking me to the races. And actually, funny enough, so I grew up in Montreal, Canada, and um, the one racetrack that we had near us was a racetrack called Blue Bonnet, and, and they had harness racing. So that's really the only racing I was sort of exposed to as a kid. Um, but after that, you know, sort of I left, I left Canada, and I went to university at Penn in, in the U.S., and I went to Fordham Law School in the city. And so I really sort of started to make my adult life in the U.S. And um, after going, after spending four years in a law firm in the labor and employment section, a law firm of Aiken Gump, actually, I ended up as in-house counsel at the NFL, the National Football League. Um, they were a client of Aiken Gump, so I had been working on a lot of their matters, uh, you know, as, as outside counsel, including um, a number of, of doping-related issues, obviously human doping-related issues, but, but that's when I first sort of got my feet wet in, in the doping world. Um, and spent 10 years there really digging into sports regulatory issues and matters. And um, for personal reasons, my family moved overseas to, to Switzerland. And um, it was at that point that I got a call from a recruiter, really, um, you know, saying that the, the International Equestrian Federation, the world governing body, for sport horses, was looking for a general counsel. Um, and that seemed like, you know, a terrific fit to me and, and very exciting. Um, and even though I didn't, to be honest, I didn't know very much about some of the disciplines because the, the FBI governs not just, you know, the Olympic ones that most of us know, like show jumping, three-day eventing, and dressage, but they also govern disciplines such as reining, vaulting, um, uh, endurance, driving um, as well, like carriage driving. So that was a you know, sort of exciting area to learn and, and opened my eyes to all of the different, essentially, disciplines in, with sport horses. And I spent about four years uh, as general counsel there where, and this is probably where my, my experience that is most relevant to the task at hand was developed, in that I um, sent, after the Beijing Olympic Games, the, uh, there were a number of positive uh, horse uh, positive tests in, um, in show jumping horses. And so there was a bit of a crisis and, and some concern that equestrians' place in the Olympic movement would be, would be in jeopardy. And so I was sort of charged with revamping and restructuring the equine anti-doping program and, and essentially, you know, making sure that it had all of the hallmarks of integrity and thoroughness and professionalism. And then actually I could get 133 at that time national federations with different countries um, on board and, and accepting um, of the new program. And so that took a number of years to do. And, um, and then afterwards, um, I actually took on for the FEI uh, the Chief of Business Development and Strategy position, where I was actually overseeing all of the commercial elements of, um, of, of sport horses. So I really got a chance to, I was very fortunate to kind of touch my hand in a number of different areas. And then when I left that position, also because we, we, we moved, uh, moved back to the U.S., um, it was sort of a natural transition to re start representing horsemen, actually, in sport horses. So I, I did that for four years, which was great, because it gave me a whole other perspective um, and the ability to understand, you know, really what, this, this is obviously in sport horses, not, not racing, but what, you know, the, the challenges uh, that, that trainers, owners, riders, um, breeders have. And, and it, it sort of gave me, a, I felt, the chance to have a really 360 understanding of, of equestrian sports. Um, so I come into, I think it's important uh, maybe even for everyone to understand that I come into this role 
with um, you know, a firm understanding of sports governance and also how equine welfare programs work and, and equine anti-doping programs work. But I don't come into it with a robust understanding or a robust experience in, in, in racing, either in thoroughbred or in standardbred. So a bit of a clean slate. Now, I mean, of course, I understand the basics and I'm educating myself. But, um, but that's not my background. Um, and, and so I, I do think that gives me, you know, some advantage to, to kind of look at things from a different lens, um, whereby I feel like I have the technical expertise to, to develop plans and, and to provide um, advice and recommendations to my board. But, but I have a bit of a blank piece of paper to kind of reconsider some of the issues. And then, of course, I have a number of, you know, very experienced and trustworthy people on the team who do have, um, you know, that deep racing experience. Well, it's certainly unique to have somebody in your position who spent years as an advocate for people who are subjected to regulatory um, uh, rules, uh, right? I mean, to have somebody exactly. who was on, the, was on the other side of it facing um, uh, suspension or medication or, 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 or whatever, and I, I think that's a point that um, a lot of, folks in harness racing aren't aware of. L let me just back up for one second. I grew up sure. in TMR. I grew up in TMR. Which Did you really? Yes. No. 10 minutes, 10 minutes from Lubonitz. When were you? You did uh, not. <laughs> yeah. Oh when were you so what a crazy coincidence. Um, it is. So I, I um, like in the 70s and early 80s, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was, yeah. We were there. Yeah, my dad had horses there from 1970 to 1979, and we moved to the state. So it sounds oh, wow. like we were probably at the track around the same time. Did you, did oh, you spend so a lot funny. of time at Blue Bonnets? Were your, were your folks uh, as excited about racing there as my folks were? So um, it's funny that you say that because my, my dad absolutely loved racing, and I was the, I'm the oldest of three girls. And... Um, my dad, you know, on Sundays, my parents had a bit of a traditional marriage, so Sunday was my dad's day to take care of me. Until I was about eight or nine, he would take me to Blue Bonnet, and he would right. tell me to tell my mom that we were at the zoo for the day. <laughs> and so for, I would come home, and she'd say, oh, what would you guys do? And I'd be like, oh, we went to the zoo. It was amazing. We saw the animals. They ran around. And literally, it was only, you know, when I turned nine or ten that I realized it was actually not the zoo um, when I went to the zoo for the first time. But, um, but no, I, I used to hang out with them for the day, and I loved it. I mean, it was amazing. You know, it's actually right, so sad. Yeah. My, my dad still lives in, in Montreal, in, in Hampstead, and I still, you know, I drive by that, that, that area all the time, and it's sort of sad to see sure. that it's no longer there. Sure, absolutely. Well, we can talk about that some other time off. <laughs> um, sure. I, I, I'll be interested to hear more of your story. So, so yeah. um, t tell us a little bit um, you know, we've been involved in sort of monitoring the federal law since it was since before it was enacted, and there's a lot. The, sort of the laws you know has divided the, the harness racing community. On the one hand, is the USDA, the United States Trotting Association, whose leaders are uh, adamantly opposed to it for a variety of reasons, and then there are hundreds of other stakeholders in the industry, including some of the largest owners and breeders and trainers who are open-minded about the federal law. Maybe we, you know, there are con some concerns about it. There are some questions about it. Obviously, not a lot of the details have come out so far, but they are at least open-minded to the idea that some sort of federal regulatory regime is going to uniform, uh, make things uniform, 
and really crack down on what most people in the industry see are, are major integrity problems and major failings of state racing commissions. And so I guess the, the, the first question to you as, as we get a, a little bit closer, um, in the four or five months since you've been brought on board, is there um, any surprise that you've come across or any reason to think that the mission of the federal law, the mission of HISA, the authority, is, is different than trying to um, bring a measure of aggressive enforcement to try to rein in some of the integrity issues that we have? Um, so first of all, I've only been in the job for two months. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> to correct that. Um, no, I gave you a promotion. Aside. Um, yeah, no, thank you. Um, so, no, I mean, listen, there isn't. Um, have I realized the complexity? Um, absolutely. And I probably, to some extent, realized that you know, when I was hired, it was going to be complex. But now I actually can visualize and live the complexity, um, which is a little bit different. And I can identify where the complexities sort of live. Um, at the end of the day, you know, my view, and this includes the USDA folks, who, who, many of whom I've met, who I think you know, are, are, are good people and are just trying to essentially um, kind of do what they think is right for, for their sport. Okay. You know, at the end of the day, I think there's, it's an industry that, that is really, um, it's almost like, it seems to me, it's almost like a, a, big, a big family. And, and maybe, you know, standard bread and, and, um, and thoroughbreds are, are sort of, you know, different families within a bigger ecosystem. But, but for the most part, what I've encountered is people who want the best for the industry, and there's just a disagreement about how to, how to get there, you know, and, and what the right paths are. And I, I obviously firmly believe in, in the federal legislation and the federal, federal oversight because, you know, basically every successful sport has a central governing body. Um, now, you can argue over whether or not, you know, Congress stepping in was, was, the right, was the right move. But at the end of the day, you know, the industry never was able to come together and agree on binding regulation across the country. And that makes it really the only sport, I would say, almost in, in the world that I can think of um, that operates that way. And that lack of uniformity, um, I think, is really, you know, m makes it really difficult for the sport to be governed in a way that is, that one, I think, taps into all its potential, um, but two, that, that, you know, allows for consistent integrity checks and balances and, um, and also potentially enough bringing together of resource and expertise to make sure that we're doing the very best for the horse. And, and, that, and in that regard, I'm sort of focusing on our racetrack safety program. So nothing's changed about, you know, to answer your question, nothing's changed about my sense of the commitment of the main stakeholders. Um, I think, you know, what's going to be challenging for me and continues to be challenging for me is trying to get everyone on the same page more or less and working together towards a common goal. Um, and what I, you know, the sort of mantra that I tell my team and that I generally espouse is we are going to bend over backwards to work with anybody who wants to work with us and to try to find, you know, solutions to make this workable in, in every state and with every, you know, breed, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's federal law. And so at some point in time, my obligation to implement the federal law kicks in. Um, it, it isn't optional, you know. At least, you know, obviously at this stage, it's only, it's only federal law for the, for the thoroughbreds. But, um, right. but ultimately, it is federal law. And 
we want to do it cooperatively. We want to do it in a way that maximizes efficiencies and, and you know, uses the resource that already exists. But at the end of the day, my job is to implement. I didn't write the law, but my job is to implement it. The, the, um, when you talk about the, the efficiency, economic efficiency, it, it raises one of the prime questions or the prime concerns that harness racing folks have, which is the cost. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that there's a, uh, almost like an historical paranoia when it comes to standard breads versus thoroughbred interests, mm -hmm. where the standard breads have felt like, um, I don't want to say bully, but like the, the small brother and the big brother and sure. have sort of been sure. pushed around. And I, I think mm -hmm. one of the things we've heard, even from people who are very open-minded about HISA and are hopeful that there's going to be a federal regime, the, the concern is that because harness horses race so much more often, because standard breads can race 30 to 40 sure. times a year, yeah. that yeah. somehow the formula to evaluate the cost of this enforcement is going to come down more heavily. Now, I don't think that's in the law. I think the law makes it very clear that thoroughbreds pay for thoroughbreds and standard breads pay for standard breads. But what can, you, yeah. what can you say to reassure people that at this point, um, there's no indication that there's going to be some exorbitant increase in the cost of enforcement that somehow horsemen, horsewomen, trainers, owners, breeders are going to pay for. Yeah, so there's a few things I'll say to that. One is, um, and I've told this to a number of different groups, I am very sensitive to the cost concerns. Um, you know, our leadership is very sensitive to the cost concerns. And we, you know, we want to make the industry better. And if, and if it's, it's not going to make it better if we bring in a program that's not affordable, and, and you see, you know, tracks closing down. That's not like what success looks like. So that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is that the standard breads are kind of in a bit of a privileged position right now, I would say, because they can sort of watch for a year or so, hopefully not much longer than a year or so, um, how, how things go for the thoroughbreds, you know, and, and how the program actually gets implemented and what that looks like from a cost standpoint and, and make judgments. Um, three, you're right that the access prohibits any um, subsidizing other way. So the standard breads, you know, are not allowed um, by the Act to, to subsidize or, or contribute to the thoroughbred program and vice versa. Um, but I really, what I'm seeing, again, it's very early, you know, and I'm, and I'm you know, and I'm still, I'm still sort of finding my way forward and figuring out what the right solutions are. What I am seeing on the thoroughbred side is that there are lots of efficiencies that we can achieve. You know, most of these state racing commissions, or all of them, I should say, have budgets for, for testing, right? And if we can create, you know, a uniform program, which is what we're going to do, and we build in those efficiencies, I'm actually hopeful that costs will, will either stay the same or, or even come down in those jurisdictions that are already doing a lot of testing and running efficient programs. For those jurisdictions that, that are not, you know, obviously costs are going to go up because they have to come up to the level of their more, uh, you know, of their sort of peer states that are doing robust testing. But for those states like New York, New Jersey, you know, they're really actually doing a fair amount, my hope is that when we achieve these efficiencies, it's not going to increase costs. And then the benefit is going to be a genuine lifting up of the industry um, overall vis-a-vis -vis the public, and hopefully that brings, you know, financial benefit to the industry. Uh, uh, thanks for, for that question. I think that, that helps uh, folks understand where we are in this process. One of the other concerns 
And, and I think you said this a couple of weeks ago when we had our broader conversation. Um, is, is when it comes to medication rules, I don't think there's very mm -hmm. much controversy on the standard bread side when it comes to right. safety rules. I, I think that there's a lot of consensus about the need for safe tracks and so forth. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's going to be some requests to tweak the rules about riding crops versus whips because of the, you know, the nature of, of racing. But, sure. but there, there are some concerns that because standard breads are different than thoroughbreds because they race differently, they're conformed differently, they're trained differently, um, that there should be at least some tweaks to medication rules. And um, I know that you can't guarantee that there's going to be um, uh, a, a different, uh, you know, medication rules that apply to standard breads versus thoroughbreds, but is your sense that there's going to be an openness to consider arguments made by standard bred, uh, standard bred owners and breeders and interest holders who say, listen, you know, we're 90% we're of the way with you, but because of the differences in the way that these animals operate, we have to have slightly different medication rules. Um, is that something you guys are open to? Uh, is that something that you will at least consider at some point when the time is right and the standard bread industry moves forward towards um, getting under this umbrella of the federal uh, regulations? Yes, and these are board decisions, so I can only kind of give you what my viewpoint is. Obviously, some of the board, um, you know, supporting this philosophy, but I think they would. And what I would say to that is we're going to be guided by the science. So absolutely, we, we're going to be open to it because we're going to have one of the kind of hallmarks of the new program is going to be having a scientific director um, and there'll be, you know, we have a committee in the board as well, the Anti-Medication Control Committee, that will look at these questions and will look at essentially, you know, what the science and research shows us about what's appropriate and what is, you know, what we need to do to maintain the integrity of, of, of the standard bread program, for example, if we get to that point. And if that means that, that because of the different, you know, nature of the sports and the fact that, you know, as you said, standard breads run much more frequently since there are breads and probably, and I understand, don't have the same, um, you know, sort of impact as, you know, running a thoroughbred race obviously right. seems to be a lot more, um, you know, a, a, a lot more... Um, it's a lot more, da it's a lot more dangerous. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, so all of those things will for sure be taken into consideration. Um, and if you're asking about LASIK, you know, we're going we're gonna to commission our study uh, this summer or, you know, sometime later this year. And again, we're going to be guided by, by the findings of that study. Um, and that applies to both standard breads and thoroughbreds. Um, I, I just have two more questions because I, I know sure. that Fred wants to keep this uh, short. One no of the, I'm, so I'm an owner and I'm a breeder, and I'm eternally frustrated that horses and trainers and owners who clearly um, have some sort of an edge um, are never caught and they just continue yeah. in perpetuity to uh, basically steal money from other owners and trainers and breeders and so forth. And I think that I've learned enough from um, my experience in the sport and from listening to Travis Tigert, for example, and others who are specialists in this kind of thing, that there's only so much that testing can do, that the people who are using illegal, illicit drugs are seems to be always a, a step or two ahead of the testing, and that um, one of the more efficient ways of catching folks who are cheating 
is not necessarily to focus only on testing, but to focus on forensic accounting and investigations and other sorts of traditional law enforcement methods that, um, uh, you know, uh, wiretaps that, that basically catch people in a different way. And I'm wondering yeah. if that's a vision that you guys are thinking about and talking about as you negotiate with USADA and other entities to, to figure out who's going to do your enforcement. That is, I have to tell you, within the top three things that I'm thinking and about um, in, in terms of the enforcement agency. So there are lots of different components that go into an effective anti-doping program. Um, and when you're talking about medication overages, um, we all know that's a very different animal and a very different, excuse me, a very different proposition than, than catching cheaters. Um, you know, medication overages are a problem, and, they, and, and, and there should be sanctions for them, in my view, but different than, than those who are actually intentionally doping horses for a performance advantage. And I absolutely share your view that testing um, only does so much. I mean, you need to have a certain amount of testing in place as a deterrent, um, because I think, you know, taking it away uh, creates, you know, sensible holes for, for cheaters to, to walk through. But, but ultimately, what you, really, what you really need is intelligence-based testing, which is testing that is, you know, pursuant to investigations, leads, um, information that you have about a particular trainer or horse. Um, and it's those intelligence-based uh, testing formulas that yield, uh, you know, positive results in terms of finding and determining, you know, who's not playing by the rules. And one of the things that we planned, because, you know, we, we have a, obviously a finite, like, like anything else, we've got a finite amount of money. And, you know, one of, the, one of my jobs and one of our responsibilities is to make sure that the money that we use from the industry is, is used as effectively and efficiently as possible. And my personal view is that a lot of that has to be in investigations and intelligence because otherwise we're not going to be able to achieve, you know, the goals that, that we want to achieve. And we've got to be making sure that we're, you know, that we're prioritizing how that money's spent. So I, I couldn't agree sure. more. Sure. Um, two, two more quick questions. Are you any closer sure. to selecting an enforcement organization? And when we talked a couple of weeks ago, you, you said we should expect something in May. And I yes. guess we're not quite in May, so I'm jumping the gun. But is... Is, do you want to break any news today and tell us if you've come to, come to a conclusion or are you inching closer? Unfortunately, I cannot break any news today, but we are very close. And um, my, my um, response that we announced something in May is still accurate and, and I expect it will be closer to the beginning of May than the end. So I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks, next few weeks. Awesome. That's great. My last question to you, and I promise it is the last. So <laughs> no problem. <I> would, <laughs> I would say there are, and, and I promise Freddie that this is a lot. Uh, so <laughs> I would guess that there's, you know, a third of the people in, in harness racing are following the lead of the USTA. Uh, I, I think that a lot of those folks have not been given full information about what HISA is and what it intends to do. And I think a third of the people are very supportive of the federal legislation. They, they like I said before, see it as a, an opportunity for a fresh start and to really generate not just changes to the integrity of policing of the sport, but to allow the sport to turn to a public face and 
especially legislators who are helping fund harness racing and say, listen, we are, we are on board with cleaning up. We realize we have to clean things up. But I think that there's this middle percentage of folks, maybe 20%, maybe 30%, who just aren't sure, right? They're mm-hmm. skeptical mm-hmm. of federal authority because of their politics maybe. They, they're a little skeptical of change. Um, maybe they're doing well. And so to those people in the standard bread industry, you say what? I say watch the thoroughbred experience. You know, and make your decision then um, because we, you know, you're in a bit of a privileged position by not being mandatorily governed from the outset. Um, and I think you're gonna, if, you, if you're actually watching what's happening in the industry, I think you would, you would notice that there's been a bit of a, a shifting of tides. And a number of our detractors um, or previous detractors are now actually supporting us and coming on board and sort of understanding that we're not, we don't, we don't have this philosophy of govern from the top down and, and, you know, irrespective of what the needs are of the various jurisdictions or tracks or horsemen, that we're actually really actively engaged in trying to understand what's best for the industry. We, you, that's our job, you know. Heise's job is to protect the integrity of the industry and the safety of the horse. And, and, and we can only do that effectively if we get the people who care about those things sort of on board and working with us. Now, you know, we're never going to get everyone on board, and there's always going to be those who, who are uncomfortable, who are detractors, for whatever reason. Um, but I think that you'll continue to see a lot more openness from highs. And it's not that we didn't want to be open before. It's that we, you know, it, it, there was so much work to be done in a short period of time that that wasn't um, the priority, was actually getting, getting the work done. Um, but now we have, we have plans, you know, we have relationships, we have, um, you know, we'll soon have an enforcement agency, we have the racetrack safety program that's launching on July 1. Um, you may have read that, again, on the thoroughbred side, that California and Minnesota have already both opted in to both paying the assessment and entering into our voluntary agreements. We expect to have a number more states announce that they're going to do so this week and next week. And many of those states were states that were, you know, firmly against us in the beginning, but now realize that we really do want to work cooperatively with them to, to basically achieve what we all want, which is, you know, better industry, safer, you know, horses that have that that are that are protected and and, and sort of live longer and, and are injury free. So. I, I, that's what I would say to, the, to those that are on the fence. You know, watch um, and make your own judgment. You know, don't don't be influenced by anyone whispering in your ear, but but, but watch watch what actually happens and make a judgment based on based on on that experience. Well, thank you for this. Will you promise us that once you make that enforcement agency decision, you'll come back on and and just uh, spend a few more minutes to give us an update? I absolutely promise. If you're buying or selling your home, Joe Rico is your go-to guy. Joe has been representing buyers and sellers on Long Island for 30 years. He is an expert in all types of sales. Don't sell for average. Call or text Joe Rico today at 516-524-4870. That's Joe Rico at 516-524-4870. You know what, Freddie? Give everybody Joe's email address. That's Joe Rico, C21 at yahoo.com. The Standard Bread Retirement Foundation has been rescuing and caring for Standard Breads since 1989. They now have over 470 horses in their care. 
Find out how you can help. Visit adoptahorse.org, the Standard Bread Retirement Foundation. Andy, thank you so much for being this week's guest host. And Lisa, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. That's a wrap of this week's show. Don't forget to tune in next week. The Harness Racing Alumni Show 